I'm Alan Barr, and this is Radio Free RPG. Hello, I'm Alan Barr, and welcome to Radio Free RPG. I am joined today by my guest, Darren Pierce, RPG writer, video game reviewer, and all-around creative individual. Pretty good. Darren, Uh, how are you today? I've just been playing um, a couple of games on the Xbox. Um, I've been playing the new Atom Punk RPG slash, well, it's like Bioshock meets 1950s Russia, Atomic Heart. Mm. I was a bit, uh, I was oh, a bit skeptical about it good? to begin with, but over the last few hours, it's been quite interesting. Wonderful. So, Darren, you're on the show today because uh-huh. you work in tabletop role-playing games, at least partially, as a creator of content. Now, you've worked with me on some projects and on other projects I've worked on concurrently. So we're going to talk today about your history, some of the IPs you've worked on, your process, and other elements of the writing side of role-playing. Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, what are some of the projects say, and products you've worked 22, on? 22, almost 23 history. years. In fact, it might be my 23-year anniversary in the role-playing game industry. Um, as of uh, this month, I've worked on um, numerous IPs. Doctor Who, Adventures in Time and Space. I've written for Lone Wolf, uh, two incarnations of that. And I've also written... For um, Savage Worlds, I did a very extended stint for Shintar on Savage Worlds, uh, produced, uh, I think in total, at least 24 books and a novella in just over, or just around six months with that Kickstarter, when when I was asked to to do that. Um, And of course, the uh, Judge Dredd. Worlds of 2000 AD, I was involved in that. I wrote uh, stuff for the core book and the Strontium Dog book. I actually wrote a whole of the Strontium Dog book, apart from a couple of bits which we included from uh, from people who uh, added extra stuff to it. Wonderful. So that, that's quite the bibliography, not to mention quite the dive into yeah. what folks in the industry call licensed IPs or licenses um, representing out of house licenses or IPs that role playing game companies produce material for so you are you particularly drawn to licensed settings um, is there something the about question. them that you find engaging i would say it has to be the particular thing like with judge dread and the worlds of 2000 AD, 2000 AD itself was a comic that I grew up with as a kid. So I was really, really interested in the same in a way as Marvel. If somebody threw a Marvel sort of writing job at me and said, oh, do you want to write something for Doctor Strange or for so-and-so? Then I'd probably jump at that because, again, that really interests me. But overall, it's like Doctor Who, that was, again, 
I grew up with the fourth Doctor, but I also grew up with the other Doctors watching them in reruns. And I've got things like Star Wars. Would I have liked to write on Star Wars, the RPG? Especially the West End Games one, because I am absolutely mad over D6 systems. Yeah, I would have jumped at the chance to write on a Star Wars D6. So I like license settings, but I do like the other settings that aren't tied to an IP, the ones that are like stuff I've worked on, obviously, with you, with your IP, but obviously it's not a licensed setting based on something that's out there like Marvel. Tiny Supers and the Gallantverse has its own thing, and I, I'm often drawn to things like that more than I am. And like with Rob, Rob Schwalb, and Shadow of the Demon Lord. Okay. Not only was I drawn to the system of Shadow of the Demon Lord, but to the setting of Demon Lord, and that's not a licensed, you know, that that's Rob's baby. And um, I mean, I wrote the sure. uh, the City of Chains book for that. So, uh, yeah, right. Okay. Now you. Mm-hmm. In, in the cases you mentioned, uh, the Gallant verse for Tiny Supers from Gallant Night Games, which was spearheaded by me, and uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord from Robert Schwab, um, yeah. those settings are still managed by somebody else, and you're writing to direction. Do you find those smaller settings to be more freeform or... Open to yeah, work in when, when you work in like somebody like yourself or, or Judge Rob, Dredd. The, the, the shackles from a IP like Doctor Who are immense. It's like you're the, the ghost of Jacob Marley and you're wrapped in all those chains because you cannot generate new content for Doctor Who. You can't create a new alien, you can't create a new take on a Dalek or a Cyberman, it has to be specifically sure. how it appears in the Doctor Who canon, as canon was back then and is now. So, for instance, if you create a planet for a Doctor Who sure. adventure, it has to be within that Doctor Who universe, and it can't have a brand new alien race on that planet because the chances of it coming back from the BBC's sort of department with lots of red pen through it are um, quite high. So it that sort of limitation is not a hard and fast rule, but more of a best yeah, practice yeah. due so to the level of work that would have to go into making it acceptable. It is easier to take something they've already generated and modify yeah. it or use it and than to create something wholesale yes, and try to like get really, it through really the approval minuscule. process with them. Okay. Oh, so yeah. Doctor Who is an IP with a lot of history, quite a bit, <laughs> um, and a very confusing Even more continuity, so both internally and to a degree externally. Uh, now, with working on Doctor Who, how intensive was the research? Did it, and and this is a general question for all these sort of IPs you work on. How how much time and effort do you have to put into 
adjusting for tone, learning the styles, well, when I did the researching materials Doctor to include or exclude. Um, for Doctor Who, because um, they brought me on to do a few bits and pieces for aliens and creatures. And that was just some um, write-ups here and there and a little bit of the adventure seeds. So that wasn't too bad. I still had to look through the Doctor Who monsters like the Vashta Narada and so on and, and get them thematically right. But with the first Doctor book, I think I've put mm -hmm. about six to seven months of pure research into William Hartnell's era by watching every single episode I could get my hands on via uh, my collection, which I'd got a few recorded. Um, I'd got a couple of DVDs. I'd got access, thanks to a friend of mine at the BBC, to a William Hartnell script directory of every Hartnell episode. Even though the footage was lost, this script directory had every single episode, including all of the lines and dialogue from every Hartnell arc. So I was able to take a lot of that and put that down when I was doing the synopsis of all of Hartnell's adventures into the first Doctor book. Wow. But also things from the era like the tech, like the TARDIS magnet and the fact that okay. the first Doctor doesn't have a sonic screwdriver. He's right. got a toolkit. And his magnet is a little device that lets him locate the TARDIS wherever it is. Right. That's interesting. I, I was aware of the lost episodes from the from the first Doctor era, but I was not aware that the scripts still existed. So there is a yeah, it's, it's one thing that I was quite lucky to know precedent a person, for that material um, at the time. Who, who sort of directed me to this place and said, look here before it disappears. Yeah. Because the chances are, knowing the internet, it probably will. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a stroke of luck. And with 2000 AD, <laughs> with the core book for Judge Red and the Worlds of 2000 AD, I put a lot of time reading the comics again because Rebellion gave us access to their entire online archive sure. from Dread, every single Dread book. All the digital comics. And with Strontium Dog, when all I did the, that, all the both access read. of my own collection of, of comics I still have and the graphic novels, um, ones that I got hold of, but also, again, a digital archive of Strontium Dog um, existed with some comics there. So I was able to look through pretty much everything and anything to, to find that stuff. And with Lone Wolf, well, I had access to the best Wow. Um, resource at the time, which was Joe Diva, rest him. Um, he was immensely helpful. Uh, he was only an email or a message away. Sure. And so if I needed a clarification, I could say, Joe, um, the Hellgast, I need to know this. And he'd shoot back this big ream of information on them. So with these IPs and the research that goes into them, is that, in the sense of the creative process, is that more intensive than creating something original wholesale? Or is it easier to use somebody else's scaffolding and, in, in essence, construct I think it's probably easier to build off around a foundation. Like, off, existing off, foundation. Like with the Gallant Verse, if we take Tiny Seepers, you've got a definite idea of what the Gallant Verse was like. And you got an idea of what England was like magically. And I, you know, I said to you, 
you know, we'll make England like this, and I sent you some ideas, the same with Germany, the same with France. And this was putting already established scaffolding up and hanging things on it and building around it. I think with trying to create something from scratch for someone, if somebody just said, I have an idea of mixing this idea with this idea, write me a setting based on it. If they say you have carte blanche to write that apart from these few criteria, that might be easier in one way because you've got completely free reign to build 95% of it compared to having an already structured thing to build onto because then you're always worried about if I say to Alan, this thing, is he going to say yes or no? Is he going to like it or isn't he going to like it? And that is always, I think, that the issue with being a a world creator and a content generator for worlds, which I specifically love to do, that is always the thing. You're in the back of the mind with Midnight City. I'm thinking, is Alan going to like this? Is Aaron going to like this? And uh, so I always think that in one way, working off the scaffolding and the foundation is easier, but it's really easy if somebody gives you carte blanche to create okay. something for them, to just let your imagination go wild. And you you, you find that you've generated like 30, 40,000 words. You found sure. it yourself when you're creating things. You suddenly blink and you've got 20,000 words of a setting on a page, a, a document, and you're like, where did that come from? <laughs> I, I'm afraid I don't know what you mean, but... Um, speaking of these settings, several of the ones you have mentioned, the Gallant Verse, uh, Judge Dread, Midnight City, they are comic book superhero inspired, or not, if not superhero, at least comic derived foundational IPs. They're, they owe their baseline to the medium of comics. Is there a particular element of the comic medium that ignites your imagination or makes you want to explore or write in that space and draws you to it? Or is it more of just a, a happy coincidence that this is where a bulk of yeah, your recent work in, we'll um, say in the last decade lies? I think in general, I am drawn to um, superheroes quite a bit, but from the, the point of view that, I like the heroics. I must admit, I'm, I'm fond of heroes helping people. I'm not so fond of storylines like Civil War and so on and so forth. I'm more interested okay. in the kind of heroes that are portrayed that go around and they help out a group of individuals who have fallen you know, against an enemy and so on. So, yeah, I think for me, comics and the work that I've done recently are probably more coincidental, but it's a happy coincidence because of the medium that I really enjoy. Um, my favourite kind of thing, I suppose, in a way, is sure. fantasy. I'm very fond of dark fantasy, um, which is probably why I'm drawn to Shadow of the Demon Lord. But I also like heroic fantasy, swords and sandals, swords right. and sorcery. I mean, I did a, a big chunk of work with Mongoose on um, the Spider God's Bride, I rewrote 
98% of that um, for the basic role-playing system, I think it was. For Legend, basically. For Legend, yeah. For Legend. Legend, yes. Yeah, well, I yes. did the I'm entirety of personally a big fan of Legend and its associated materials. And I might have done three. I can't remember if I did three yes, or not. It's been I a while have since a copy I looked. I also on my did shelf. some stuff to do with the Dark Elves, which um, for a Legend Shale off, right. was... Um, Okay. So, you know, we've we've talked about superheroes. We've touched on the fact that you like uh, dark fantasy. You mentioned Sword and Sandal, which happens to be a particular interest of mine, is the Sword and Sandal. I've recently completed a oh, yeah. pseudo I have seen a preview of that. I have to say that is, that is Swords some pretty of good work, though, mate. That is some really good work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, for me, my sword and sandal love goes back to films like Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts, the Ray Harryhausen era of sword and sandal with the stop-motion animated monsters. Is there a particular element or era of sword and sandal that you were drawn to or has inspired your life for that genre? Sinbad and associated stop-motion is where I fell in love with it. And also over time, you know, picking up things like Swords and Sorcery, picking up things like Conan, and picking up um, and seeing films that have that, even though they were mm-hmm. bad B-movie films, I loved them. You know, you can throw me The Sword and the Sorcerer with um, Lee, I think it was Lee Horsley as the sword with the three-bladed sword <laughs> fires off. I believe and that's correct, like that. yes. And the David Carradine one, I think, yes. was a sword and the sorceress, something like that. And uh, I'm going through my brain memory of, of dredging up old films here. I believe that's close <laughs> to correct. They, that's it. English they title often one, have American different title titles, and so on. which can make it difficult um, to track. I must say, though, that uh, Fritz Lieber, Lankmar, drew me a lot to that genre because I always look at Lankmar okay. as being more in that sword and sandal. When you read the Lankmar books, you kind of see that Fafiad and the Grey Mouse Interesting. as more sword and sandal kind of heroes. The way that Lieber writes about it, I, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but I absolutely adore the Lankmar books, is very much in that kind of feel. And along with Howard and Conan, that's really where my love of sword and sandal comes from. So stop motion, you know, Lankmar and Conan are the the major. So that's an interesting point you bring up. Yeah. Sword and sandal and sword and sorcery are different genres. And they have some key differences, which, to my understanding, Sword yeah. and Sandal derives itself more from real-world history or myth, even the Greek myths, the Romans, etc. Whereas Sword and Sorcery is more of a second or third world fantasy yeah. with a low magic or magic is evil sort of vibe to it. But Sword and Sandal does feature... Uh, for example, Jason and the Argonauts, the gods play a significant role in that. There is magic. There are prophets and oracles. Um, 
uh, Titans and Colossi. Yeah, that's, that's always one that throws Colossuses, me. Colossi. I'm not sure what yeah, the plural Colossi of Colossus is. I'm going to go with Colossi. That feels right. And now we have our episode <laughs> title. So far, all the episode <laughs> titles have been made from mispronunciations of mine. So we're on track. So for you, do you draw a line between those two genres that is distinct, or do you prefer sort of I a think I blurred amalgamated kind of interleave? So like the blurred amalgamated mix, elements of one found in another. Uh, again, going back to Lankmar, you can definitely see Luba's love of classic kind of right. tropes in there. But there is very much that kind of sword and sorcery element to Lankmar mm-hmm. with the old gods of Lankmar and the wizards of Lankmar, the magic and all that. But it still has that kind of feel of a more swords and sandal. I think the way he writes it and the way he portrays battle, similar to like Howard's love of doing very short, concise, sure. co- concise combat scenes. In Conan and the Tower of the Elephant, the first time you meet Conan in that yes. story, you know he's in the he's in the tavern, and Howard takes a paragraph or two to describe the fight that he has in that tavern, and then he's just walking off away, and there's just dead people everywhere. Yet he doesn't dwell on it; he just writes a paragraph or two, and that's it, done. He's on to the next story yes. bit. So I think for me, that's that's you can interleave the two, so you've got that kind of punchy action dialogue that's very quick and yet yet you've, that's all right yet you've got that now, magical element as well no go ahead i apologize sure so you're describing these story bits and the punchy combat and the rapid fire moving from scene yeah. to scene that is very very common in pulp fiction um, especially early Sword and Planet, Sword and Sorcery, Sword and Romance, right? In role-playing games, are there any games that land that punchy combat well? Are there any games that enable that in a way you find engaging? Or if not, what do you think it would take to create that experience well, back in, in the, old days, the mechanical you know, space? My history, I grew up with RPG. the classic, basic D&D when I was... When I was nine, I played it at school. I was bought it for my 10th birthday sure. by my mom and dad. The basic red box we keep on the Borderlands. But I've always, throughout my entire life, found that D&D and that kind of thing, by extension Pathfinder, no, no offense to any Pathfinder, Pathfinder 2, Starfinder, all of these things are really long-winded when it comes to combat. If you use a lot of the optional rules and the modifiers... The combat in one can go on for quite a while. Even just, say, four skeletons versus three players can go on, as, as you know, for, for quite a bit. I've found sure. one system where combat flies, and I'm going to um, speak Robert to J. Schwab's name again, and that's Shadow of the Demon Lord. And interestingly, I've taken Shadow of the Demon Lord over the last year or two, and I've thrown Conan at it. Um, because we were playing Conan Exiles on the Xbox uh, group of us, and then I decided I want to run a Conan Exiles-esque style game using sure. 
something, looked at Shadow of the Demon Lord and thought, well, straight away, combats in Shadow take very small amounts of time. Uh, I could also throw it at Tiny Dungeon, second edition, because, again, the Tiny system is perfectly suited for all this kind of role-play-driven but really fast and punchy combat scenes where, you know, the agency is always in the player's hands. And I think that's really important when you've got a combat kind of lethality like Conan. I think you need to put as much agency into the player's hands compared to putting it into a GM's hands. Because I've seen a bunch of GMs who would just slaughter an entire party and the game would just end. So, yeah, I think Shadow and Tiny Dungeon 2nd Edition, if you wanted to do like a swords and sorcery thing, okay. would work. And obviously your own um, sword and uh, sandal. Yes. Um, it's interesting you bring up Conan Exiles because we'll be crowdfunding a role-playing game later this year mm-hmm. called Carrion Lands, which is very much a survival horror sword and sorcery game with a very punchy, quick resolution yeah. to the combat system. So this is a topic I've thought about quite a bit. I I find that the trick to keeping things in that punchy, cinematic, story-driven yeah. sense is to cut down on the level of roles as well as decision points to keep things moving. (laughs) So you write a lot. You are prolific. What are some of the processes and elements you use to achieve this writing? Um, The speed, the output that aspiring or struggling writers might benefit from? Do you have any That's particular advice, any I tips, mean, my tricks, tools of the trade? Is uh, Definitely. My, my process is definitely... I'm full of them um, today. It's, it's evolved over the years. Um, but my main one is that I always have a notebook. Now, everybody in the digital age has a computer, pretty much, or a phone or, or some way of getting access to some way of taking notes, colour note, you name it. But I have a physical pad of paper. And very often, if I'm doing a project, I will sit first of all for an hour or two, even with um, the Asher Solomon stuff for, for the Gallant verse, the House of Solomon. I actually wrote down just random things that came to mind sure. as I was sitting there. And on one piece of blank white paper, I have names and ideas with circles on and a spider diagram. And so I I tend to create on paper a lot of the time first so that I can look at it and go, does this make sense? Does this work? If If I put this together, does it actually flow well is the idea of, of sort of um, beginning, middle, and end, even when you're writing something like A House of Solomon. How do you start it? Where's the middle bit? What am I going to tell the players? And how am I going to wrap that last bit of The House of Solomon up with what sure. I tend to throw in, of course, as you know, are little adventure seeds, adventure hooks, or you know, just anything at the end of the writing that says, you know, these are five things that particularly could happen right. as part of The House of Solomon. Throw them at the players. See what happens. 
So with my process, it is very much a kind of regimented process. I can do what I call chaos design, which is rather like, I think it's Stephen King who just writes and then it comes together. Um, I can do that, but I tend to prefer a sort of starting with ideas on paper and then expanding them. Because sure. if you write ideas on paper, it's a lot easier in one way to just sort of discard them and write on another bit of paper. With documents, I find that I'm always thinking, how can I salvage this? It's like Tolkien with Lord of the Rings, you know, like throwing chapters at chapter. Oh, I don't like chapter three. Sure. I'm rewriting it in the bin, rewrite chapter three. Yeah. So, so, yeah, my uh, I'm very much a regimented sure. okay. step writer. Do you set daily goals for yourself in terms of output or content or time? So, for example, I have found... That if I dedicate, uh, I set a goal every day of a minimum of four yeah. hours of writing time or a certain word count, whichever occurs first. Because if mm. I try to sit and say I have to hit a word count, I might fail out some days. Or if I say I have to do yeah. eight hours, that might be too much. So I've created a hybrid goal structure to allow myself a bit of flexibility to keep the creative engine going. No, I Is actually, there a I actually thing do you do that fairly similar? similar you do I'll almost different? do a nine to five workday, depending on the project. For instance, with Midnight City, with the stuff I wrote there, mm -hmm. I pretty much dedicated the morning to doing work on Midnight City. Then I had lunch and then the afternoon and it's project by project is how i generate it but sometimes i'll be like i want to hit three thousand words okay. today and that three thousand could be on a project for you could be on a project for jim pinto could be on a project right. for somebody else as long as i've hit the three thousand words i'm like wow i've done that now i'm happy tomorrow i can do another three thousand words and the way from jumping from project to project as well it's quite good because if you start to burn out in one way on one project or you start to lose a sort of focus on it or an idea doesn't quite come and you move on to another one, you almost get mm -hmm. energized by that project and then you can come back again to the first one and go, aha, got it. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, sort of a snowballing effect. Okay. Yeah. So... You primarily write as a freelancer for other companies. You don't run your own publishing company, whereas I do. I primarily write for myself for my own products. You are the opposite. You don't write for yourself in the sense of this is something that I am producing, I am fully responsible for. What are some things you've learned as a freelancer about working with publishers that might help aspiring freelancers or potential freelancers or current ones even? Um, when they are selecting who they work with, how um, they manage their product. Well, I always and like and to, like as you know, work with the person that I'm working with. So I'll, I'll constantly fire back um, questions or get feedback. Like when I'm designing something for, mm -hmm. for someone, I'll be like, I'll send, say, the first paragraph or two or even a page and say, what do you think? Is, is this cool? Does this fit your vision? And so I think one of the things is constant communication. Okay. 
I would stress any aspiring writer that's going to work with someone like yourself or even with Mongoose or with uh, Savage Mojo, you name it. Um, right. Establish lines of communication and try to communicate as openly and as frequently as you can. Don't be almost afraid of, of sending stuff because, you know, people will say, okay, yeah, that's great, but, you know, you don't need to keep sending mm-hmm. me all this every five minutes. Or they'll say, hold on, um, what are you doing now? Right. Um, you know, where, where are you on the project? You know, three weeks later, you've written 100 <laughs> words. And you're sort of like, um, well, right. <laughs> that doesn't go well, as you know, with publishers like yourself. So, yeah, constant right. lines of communication. Um, open honesty is another sure. good one. Always be honest. If you can't understand something in a setting or a system, okay. and they're like, I want an adventure, and this mechanics, you're doing it all. As you know with me, I like to write the content. I like someone else to do mechanics most of the time. I can do mechanics, but I like to focus on the content because that's where my brain goes most of the time. Sure. Um, but I imagine, or rather, you know, Absolutely. you've got to know, say, that system. So Shadow of the Demon Lord. Now, Rob was good enough to put stats and statistics and things into the City of Chains. I did him the core writing. But right. if you come across someone who's a publisher and says, okay, I want this adventure for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you've got to do all the mechanics, etc., etc., and you don't understand a particular element of that, then sitting there going, oh, isn't going to work, get on right. the email, email the person and say, look, I don't understand this mechanic. Can you explain it? Because I need to put it in the adventure. And they will appreciate that. I've found people appreciate that far more than you turning in an adventure right. with a question mark on the mechanic bit saying, I don't understand this. Um, can you fill it in yourself? <laughs> Sure. Interesting. So two more questions as we kind of roll forward. Well, three really. So first for people who are wanting to get into the freelance RPG writing field, do you have any advice about how to go about getting those working jobs or gigs? Important things is to communicate early and keep your eye on um, well, there's Facebook groups, uh, there's online social media in general, um, especially things like okay. Mezo, White Wolf, and so on. Look at the social media sites and see if they are hiring a writer. A lot of the time, as you know, publishers will put out an open call and say, we are looking for writers. I mean, recently I responded to um, an open call by Modifius, and I'm working on a a, a secret project for Modifius that I can't say anything about, but um, I, I went through the process Ooh. of, you know, a sort of nope. looking on Understood. social media. I went, oh, hello, there's a right. call here. I'll respond to this one. And surprise, surprise, you know, I actually got um, a reply and it all went through to that particular thing. The same with the video game industry in a okay. way. Uh, there was an there, there was there was a, a call through 
um, I won't say open, okay. but it was open a, around the certain channels of Keen software to uh, write for space engineers on a particular thing. Now, I didn't make the cut, but I got through to the top three and then to the top two. So I was quite happy with that. But okay. um, it's like, look on the social yeah, that's wonderful. sites. Look on, look on the web. Definitely keep your eye and listen to other people. And also... If you, obviously, we're, we're still kind of around COVID and so on, but the great places are things like UK Games Expo, um, Gen Con, you know, Origins, right. all, all these places, Dragon Meet, Dragon Con, going there and actually getting to speak to publishers firsthand. Like people came up to me at UK Games Expo and said, I want to get into the role-playing game industry. How do I do it? And this was after my, you know, workshop on how to write adventures. I had people come up and say, how do you get into the role-playing game industry? And I said, when you talk to people like me who know people right. who publish role-playing games, who might be looking for aspiring writers, who specifically said, oh, by the way, Darren, if anybody at your seminar gets your interest, please feel free to pass them on to me. And so I think networking is a massive skill to learn Sure. Um, as an aspiring writer. Again, friendliness and not... Okay. You don't want to kind of kick in the door on a publisher and say, you know, I am so-and-so, I am brilliant, I have done, you know, I've got this, this, and this idea, and you should change this on your system. Oh, by the way, um, Pathfinder 2nd Edition would work so much better if you put glowing pink bears in it. That's a brilliant idea, and, you know, I think you should listen to me. That's not going to go down well with big publishers like Paizo, and it's certainly not going to go down well with third-party publishers. Right. So, again, the attitude, approaching people in the right way is another important skill. It's because you've got to prove to a publisher right. that you're good enough to write on their thing. And, you know, I've done it for 22 slash 23 years, and most of the time, people have come to me and said, hey, um, you know, you did this thing. I don't suppose you'd be interested in writing this thing for me. And I've gone, okay, yeah, cool, yeah. Um, and it never thought, you know, I never right. really thought at the time to ask. <laughs> it's like people go, do you want to work on Doctor Who? Um, right. Okay. I had a phone call from Angus about um, Judge Dredd and the World of 2000 AD, and he just said, We've got a new thing coming. Um, it's something very near and dear to your heart, sure. but I can't tell you what it is at the moment. Would you be interested in working on it? And I'm like, well, uh, I don't know what it is. And, and I was like, but previously, yes. And vague enough to later, not really know, but again. sure. Said, okay, look, I've been told I can tell you what it is. Uh, it's Judge Dredd and the world of 2008. And I went, yes, I'm in. <laughs> you know, okay. that's the kind of thing you say. Absolutely. Right. One of mm. one of my great sadnesses is I never yes. got to I think write that would have been a great to because we really wanted to do Slane. work on that. I think we um, talked about that. It's one of the top ones of, of that yes. kind of genre that we love. And it's think well, you know, oh my god, what a great IP to yes. work on. The same as Nemesis yes. the Warlock. I would have dearly loved with Andrew Peregrine yep. to work on a Nemesis the Warlock book. But Salavi, sure, as they say. Yeah, 
So, my second to last question. What are the three most influential role-playing games on you in terms of your writing style and approach to RPGs? And I'm looking for more of a quick bullet point, like three names, uh, so people can look them up and kind of see if they're interested. I'm going to say Savage Worlds was a big influence uh, through Savage Mojo, especially when, you know, I was uh, doing a lot of stuff with, with Savage Worlds. I would have originally said 13th Age, but that got kind of pipped out by Shadow of the Demon Lord. I spend a lot more time thinking on how to make things for Shadow of the Demon Lord. And um, one of the big influences going okay. way back, Warhammer fantasy role play. Mm-hmm. So, and we're talking the original Wuffrup, the, the sure. head one. Okay. Then that got replaced by Green Ronin's version. Absolutely. Because as much as I love the fourth edition one that Cubicle 7 have got, I still yes. have a soft spot for Green Ronin and Chris's vision mm-hmm. for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. So those are the three. Okay. Wonderful. Those are great answers. Um, and the last um, question, do you have anything you would like to ask good, me? Good, 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 good question. Because I've, I've always... This is, this is always great. because I even told you in like, advance that I was going to ask this question. Do I ask so. something like, what are you looking forward to doing next? Or do I ask... You can. <laughs> you can ask me whatever I, you'd this like. Is, this I is might actually not answer it, but you can ask. A good example of freelance writers approaching publishers because do you use this opportunity to ask if you've got anything that I can work on in the near future? Okay. And that is basically Put me not, on the spot on the internet. You know so I can I cut this out of the that. interview, right? It's a I good just... example of what not to ask. <laughs> it's not something I do across a friend, let alone someone who was just like just a regular publisher. Can you imagine you going, so yeah, is there anything I can work on? Uh, Put me right in the, the hot seat. Oh, we lost, uh, we lost Darren. Don't know what happened. Role-playing game that you would love to write and or publish, be it your own or be it a proper IP. You know, you like Dune <sighs> and so on and so forth, looking at Medivius. I will I will answer for an IP because I actually started working on one today that I don't want to spoil. So, um, for an IP, I think one of my I have two dream uh, properties that would be fantastic for me to uh, to work on. First, I'm a huge fan of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, and I would love to do an RPG adaptation of that. Yeah, is one of the few I would actively pursue or chase. And two, uh, I've always been a big fan of Adrian Chavatsky's harder science fiction. Mm. Um, and I would love to do an adaptation. Yeah, of that's an interesting one with like the hard sci-fi. Well. Because you see a Those both land high on my list. Soft kind of sci-fi, Starfinder fantasy sci-fi, um, yes. so on and so forth. But you don't tend to see a lot of the harder science fiction. 
Right. Um, I suppose in one way we could call Traveller, the original Traveller with the, the tiny books, was a hard sci-fi RPG because my crew that I was captain I would think of so, must have yes. spent at least two and a half hours trying to work out jump trajectories on that particular or, or fuel usage and so on. Yep, so you know what I mean there. Um, I have been in that book. So, yeah, those are, those are two good. Yes, yes. Two good. Um, that was that was a good question. Yes. Well, Darren, if folks want to look at your got, work um, or find well, you and connect with you online, how can they sort do of so? look at my um, work? You've got my um, <clears throat> Amazon, where you can see various books that I've had published on Amazon. Although that is probably out of date, because as you know, Amazon tends to not add things, or it'll add them much later on. Drive through RPG. I'm on there. Um, if you look me up um, on there, you'll see my work on Drive Through okay. RPG. If anybody looks up Tiny Supers on Drive Through RPG, they'll see my name attached, uh, especially on the Guide to the Gallant Verse. And um, yes. Facebook, as I said, and Twitter. I'm on Twitter um, still, kind of hanging on there. Okay. All Just, right. That's it. Just, just waiting to see what, what uh, happens. Cat, more than cat on the poster, just hang in there. Twitter that I follow who Excellent. are archaeologists because I'm a big fan of archaeology. So uh, I, I keep an eye on uh, some of the members of Time Team. Okay. And uh, wonderful. Um, talk to them on Twitter. And um, then I think that's it because I don't actually have a personal website. I was going to get one, but um, it never one. seemed to materialize. And I'd be terrible, I think, with a personal. Exactly. I, I... There, there, <laughs> there are a lot of work. Well, yeah, I understand. Trust me. I run one myself. I run a few. Um, well, thank you very much, listeners. This has been Alan Barr with my guest, Darren W. Pierce. Darren is a role-playing game writer. You can check out his work at the previously mentioned places. Um, I want to thank you for listening to Radio Free RPG, and have a good day.